You have to remember, this is a country that has nuclear weapons, and he has, uh, Putin has said that uh, he has tactical nuclear weapons and will use them if necessary. And by the way, Putin does not bluff. You could see more of this more directly pointed at former President Trump in the very near future. All he respects is power. He doesn't respect words. And, and until he believes that, that America will stand by its word, until he believes that there's someone in the White House who won't be frail enough to walk over, then uh, then he's going to keep on going. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All eyes were on President Biden's State of the Union address on Tuesday night against the backdrop of Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine. So did he win hearts and minds and put an anxious world and nation at ease? Aaron Call, University of Michigan Director of Debate, with Chris Renwick on the Paul W. Smith Show. Yeah, it's not going to be considered in the, in the pantheon of uh, some of the better addresses. Uh, but, you know, I think yeah, I'd give it a, a passing grade. You know, there were generally the president benefits from uh, lowered expectations. He had a lot of stuff he needed to do last night, given the Russia-Ukraine conflict really threw a wrench into the initial plans of the speech. Um, early returns looks like it was viewed, you know, favorably amongst those that watched it. But most of the time, those that tune in are kind of your supporters anyway, so it's yet to be seen whether, you know, moderates and independents and those that he really needs, um, you know, kind of back on his side, what they think of it. But um, but no, I think that my, my biggest surprise was just I, I, I thought that the Russia-Ukraine conflict would be a bigger component. Yeah. Um, you know, basically, it was, it was 10 minutes, and, and I know he, there's a lot of domestic issues, and, you know, inflation is probably the largest issue right now, but... The Ukraine was the place where there's actually buy-in and bipartisanship, you know, and kind of despite the, the political polarization that exists in the country, he had the ambassador there. And and so you want to kind of, you know, when you're in a good place and you have the, the audience on your side, you want to spend as much time as there as possible. But it was, you know, just about 15 percent or 15 percent of the overall speech, which is a little bit less than I had predicted. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because I, I as a as a in a in a in an administration in a year where they've kind of spun their tires. They haven't been able to really get things going the way that the president had expected, whether it was his Build Back Better agenda. You know, he'd, he'd alienated a couple of key senators um, that, that just totally disagreed in the way in which that he was trying to govern and get bills passed. And um, in, in a time when there hasn't been many wins for this administration over this first year, it seemed with the way that the 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 Congress responded to his uh, comments on Ukraine and on Russia, everybody's on the same page for the most part. Everybody is in agreement that the president has taken appropriate steps. I'm not saying that he's he's taken all the steps yet, but he's taken appropriate steps in dealing with this issue. And so I thought there would be a little more time spent on that and, and maybe even looking forward to what we can expect. I, I guess we don't know how the situation is going to develop. So perhaps he wants to, to to hold the cards close to his his chest right now, and and we'll see if if more comes of that. I, I thought it was interesting because it, it, and I had just talked to uh, Congressman Tim Wahlberg about this. He really seemed to try to play more toward a moderate base last night, talking about immigration, talking about funding police as opposed to defunding them. It, it was a it, it seemed like to me that he was trying to 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 bring back some folks that. Maybe had fallen off of his support uh, uh, train. He's trying to get some of these folks back. Do, do you think he accomplished that? 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with, with your, your take on that. And I think the police funding was the biggest example that I saw. Um, it, it's too soon to see whether, um, you know, they'll be back in the fold, and especially when the midterm happens in November, whether they'll be back uh, with the Democratic Party. But, but yes, he's you know, been pushed and pulled both ways. I think in general he's a fairly moderate, but you know, he kind of had to move to the left politically in order to win the Democratic primary when he's you know, going against people like uh, Elizabeth Warren and, and others. And, and yeah, the, you know, there's no better example of a Build Back Better. You know, for a while, um, the bipartisan physical infrastructure part of the legislation could have passed, but kind of sided with the more liberal members to, um, to have, use that as leverage, and, and that didn't work. And I do think last night was kind of the start of a pivot back to the center because, you know, that's where the votes are, and if the Democrats are going to um, lessen, you know, their, their losses in the midterms, it's going to be because of moderate independent voters that support him for president in 2020, but if, you know, he's kind of lost because he's veered too far to the left, I think it shows that he recognizes that. Um, and, you know, people like Joe Manchin, who was sitting with the Republicans last night, they're mm -hmm. going to determine what, if anything, from Build Back Better passes. And uh, certainly, you know, we, we know where he is politically. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky implored the United States and NATO to either impose a no-fly zone over his country or give him the airplanes to do it himself at a press conference on Thursday. John James served multiple tours of duty in Iraq as an aviation officer in the Army, retiring with the rank of captain, and he lent his expertise to Guy Gordon. Let me ask you about something that a, a, a parliamentarian from Ukraine had to say. Her name is Alexandra Ustinova. She's in this country because she's about to have a baby. And um, she said that she felt that she was deeply disappointed in the president's speech last night. She said, look, when you asked us to give up our nuclear weapons in 94, we did because you promised us that if Russia incurred that you would defend us. Where are you? And she asked what I thought was a very pointed question. Cut 10. What is the red line that Putin has to cross for the NATO and the U.S. to step in? We're not asking for boots on the ground. We're asking for the Iron Dome or for the no-fly zone. We need the protection of the sky so that the bombs and the missiles do not hit our children's gardens. You have provided air cover. You are a pilot. I know it must really grind you to see that convoy and not be able to take them out. Um, but could we provide her and her countrymen with the Iron Dome? Could we go in and, and give them the kind of um, air cover that they need, or would that be an act of war? What can you, we do? You, so in anything that this liar, Vladimir Putin, this, this murderer, Vladimir Putin, could use to twist to his own game. So we shouldn't be basing our, our decisions on what's best for ourselves and our allies upon uh, what he thinks of us. In fact, there's too much of that going on in the White House to begin with. So you mentioned I. I I am uh, uh, an Apache pilot. I was an Apache pilot. I flew operation, uh, combat operations in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I can tell you, the AH-64 Longbow Apache helicopter pilot uh, helicopter was literally built to kill Russian tanks and armored personnel carriers. And when I hear of a single convoy, 40 miles long, of, of tanks and Russian vehicles heading toward Ukraine, the first thing that pops into my mind is me and a few buddies could take an afternoon with a bunch of Hellfire missiles and have smoking hulks within a matter of minutes. Um, we have awesome American um, fighting power. And I'm not, I don't have the, uh, 
the resources that that the in the intelligence that that folks in the White House and the Defense Department have. But I can just tell you that that the frustration that I have and the frustration that people have seeing this develop. And and I'll, I'll admit I'm not I'm not calling for uh, for war. I hate war. I've been to war. No one hates more than a, war more than a soldier. But I can say we are built differently. There are people who are built. Uh, and they always see that when democracy is under threat, when there are people who can't defend themselves, there are people who, who have a feeling in their hearts that it's their duty, it's their obligation to stand up for them. So, yes, when I see this stuff going on, I feel some sort of call to, to go and help and to keep America's word. Because what is more dangerous than any particular incursion is the fact that when our enemies and our allies can no longer trust America to keep its word, that's more of a threat than any particular decision that can be made. So, yes, America must keep its promises to its allies. America, and after so, the, the disastrous uh, pullout in Afghanistan, um, we can ill afford uh, a more more uh, hits to our credibility. So how do we do that? By giving them targeting intelligence, by, by providing them with the Iron Dome? Could we get that up and running quickly enough to be of use? I think that uh, that one of the things that we could do is uh, we could absolutely say that by positioning to protect our allies, I believe that we have already deployed Apache helicopters and, uh, and aerial assets and resources to, uh, to say, Latvia, Poland, Estonia, and, uh, and sending those weapons. We must absolutely keep doing that and, uh, and let Putin know on no uncertain terms that there's nothing off the table. I believe okay. that a no-fly zone is absolutely appropriate. I believe that deploying um, resources to make sure that Putin doesn't go any further um, goes. Uh, but but it, all this boils down to you can send everything that you want, but until Putin begins to respect the American word and the American position, uh, then, then it's, it's, it's all he respects is power. He doesn't respect words. And, and until he believes that, that America will stand by its word, until he believes that there's someone in the White House who won't be frail enough to walk over, then, uh, then he's going to keep on going. A strong so, America at home is the biggest deterrent, and making sure that we keep our word is the biggest deterrent for, uh, for, for Putin. The hacktivist group Anonymous has entered the fray declaring cyber war on Russia. But what about the cyber threat from Russia to us here in the United States? Former FBI agent and chair of the House Intelligence Committee Mike Rogers with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz on All Talk. And you have to remember, this is a country that has nuclear weapons. And he has uh, Putin has said just within the last eight days, twice, that uh, he has tactical nuclear weapons and will use them if necessary. Uh, he And by the way, Putin does not bluff. Uh, if he tells you he's going to do something, he'll do something. So you get NATO engaged in a direct ground war with Russia, boy, you can almost rest assured that there's going to be a tactical nuclear uh, explosion along the way. I mean, it's that serious. It's that devastating. He said he would do it. Uh, I wouldn't push him on that. Uh, and uh, that's that's a key concern. Secondly, their cyber capability is just, you know, really second to none, and it's a peer, what we would call a peer of the United States. And so if they wanted to come in and shut off water and electricity and uh, take business and, and use a, what's called a wiper virus and just take all of their data, make, make them absolutely non-functional, they could cause a lot of harm, a lot of chaos in the American economy if they chose to do it. Now, that would be an act of war. But if we're fighting ground forces in Ukraine, all, all bets would be off. And I think that's what people are saying. We need to be smart about how we push back on his uh, aggression. 
Has Vladimir Putin indicated that he will stop once he takes Ukraine, or do we have not have any idea what his uh, full intentions are? And I say that because is it just our hope that he'll take Ukraine and live with the sanctions and everything will settle down? It's no. I mean, and I talked to a lot of uh, you know old Russian hands, if you will, in the intel business. And he's been pretty clear for the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years. He's given speeches along the way about the the land integrity of the uh, what was the former Soviet Union. So the, the Baltics, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Latvia would certainly be on his list. He believes and he has said in the past that those really are Russian uh, holdings and should have never been in uh, NATO at all. And they still should be. Uh, Russian. And so he's many people believe he won't stop um, and he will probably regather himself and lick his wounds and see how it goes. And he's going to have to either do two things, just absolutely scorch earth Ukraine until he wins, uh, which you're starting to see the beginnings of that. Or he ends up trying to get some land uh, deal where he can control big swaths of eastern Ukraine that would allow them to go around the what's called the Azov Sea uh, and control both sides of that. And he, he in his mind, that probably would be, uh, you know, a, a distant second prize for him. Yeah. Uh, but if the sanctions and the military conflict has too sharp a pain, he might get there. But it doesn't mean he's done. And it doesn't mean he's going to go away on any of the things that he has said he's going to do. And remember this, when he got in in 99, he had a very bloody effort in Chechnya. He sent troops in mm-hmm. and killed a lot of people. And then in 2008, he invaded the country of Georgia. In 2014, he took Crimea, and now he's doing this. So there is a definite pattern here. And by the way, he telegraphed every one of those events. He did. And I think you're right. He doesn't bluff, and he's he's showing that uh, to the world right now. And he has been speaking uh, publicly, and I'm sure much more privately, about the, his intentions in a lot of ways. When it comes to the cybersecurity, he's already started these attacks, uh, it can be argued, on our country, the United States. We've already seen this thriber, cyber threat, uh, ransomware attacks against meat producers. Um, that was tough for us when it happened, but it wasn't long-lasting. We had that pipeline last year, that attack from Russia on the East Coast. We forget about how we are every day at risk uh, he is, he's already committed these types of things, um, these cyber attacks. Are, are we more at risk, do you think, from a government public sector perspective from him, like infrastructure, or is it more private industry like like banking or data of that nature or, or uh, money or corporations? Are they more at risk? Uh, the simple answer is yes, all of the above. <laughs> Both. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, he has done a little bit of all of that already. So even in Ukraine, he went after the government. And he did some disruptive. He hasn't used his best malware, by the way. He's just really selectively using these these events. He had something called a wiper virus, which should you know give everyone pause. Imagine if all your data in your financial institution is destroyed or rendered useless. Um, and try to rebuild all of that capability. Even when the colonial pipeline was done on a ransomware attack, they were able to rebuild in many cases. That's not the worst thing that they can do in those cases. The worst thing they can do is something called a wiper virus where it destroys all of that data. So every electronic thing connected to your network just doesn't work anymore. And by the way, you're not rebooting it. you got to go out and get new stuff and try to re- recreate this. You imagine the chaos that that would cause. 
And so we've seen him do it with financial institutions. He did it in Ukraine. We we have seen him shut down an electric grid. He did that uh, about two years ago uh, in Ukraine. He shut down uh, about 250,000 people's uh, electricity, just turned it off. Hmm. Uh, and I think it lasted somewhere around a week uh, that before they could figure it out and get it back up and running. And so if you think, start thinking about that, and he decided to pick a, a region of the country and say, all right, I'm just going to absolutely wreak, wreak havoc. You can't get cash. You can't get gas. Your groceries are going away. Uh, you can imagine the chaos and confusion that creates. And, and candidly, uh, Russia, the Russian intelligence services – have the capability for that, what we would consider an offensive cyber attack like that. They have it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we would have some defense, but we as Americans are very open in our internet. Remember, it's a private mm-hmm. sector internet. The government doesn't monitor the private sector internet, and so they can get in and wreak havoc, so likely would go after our private sector before they'd go after our government. The House Committee on January 6th has submitted a court filing that alleges former President Donald Trump and lawyer John Eastman took part in a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. Podsui mainstay Matthew Schneider was the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan during the Trump administration, and he breaks down the filing with Marie Osborne. This is a big step for this committee. They haven't done anything quite like this before to make allegations, but it it is very, very significant. And I think it sets down a path about exactly where they're heading. You could see more of this more directly pointed at former President Trump in the very near future. That's what I was just thinking as you were talking was that this uh, it was sort of a a look ahead that if you look ahead and you say, I'm going to do this or I'm thinking of doing this, that that's where you run amok with the attorney client privilege. That's true. And that's another point here is we can take what's happened here and look at what the committee has done in this filing, which actually was made in California in a court out there. And we can think, well, where are we going to look ahead? You know, this committee appears to be based on the report from the media. They're not going to back down. And if they make an allegation that former President Trump and Eastman are involved in a criminal conspiracy, you don't really think they're just going to drop that issue, do you? You know, most people would think once they say it in California, they're going to say it again in Washington, D.C., and that would be a way to predict where this might be heading in the future. So it was a 61-page court filing this week. Um And lawyers for the House wrote this, and this is a direct quote. Evidence and information available to the committee establishes a good faith belief that Mr. Trump and others may have engaged in a criminal and or fraudulent act and that plaintiff's legal assistance was used in furtherance of those activities. So how much evidence actually has to be presented to show someone engaged in uh, criminal or fraudulent acts and can't? They use the defense that, well, I in good faith believe that the election was tainted or that there was a problem with this election. Can they use that defense? Certainly they can, but they're not really at that stage right now. What they're at is the stage of just trying to obtain the documents. The committee just wants to know what these emails and texts said. And they said, you know, we have a reasonable belief that there's a good faith uh, example of a crime. And so what they're saying is, let's turn it over to the judge and let's have the judge make this decision. And then once the judge makes that decision, he could turn it over to the committee. Now, it's also important to note that this is just a congressional committee. It can't bring charges against Mm -hmm. anyone. Only the Justice Department can bring a federal charge. And so what you could see is 
even if the committee gets this information, they can't actually charge anybody. But what they could do is they could ask the Justice Department to bring a charge. And that's what we would be seeing potentially in the next couple of months. And that's, um, yeah, the House is not a prosecuting body, uh, but the Justice Department certainly is. And a lot of people are uh, theorizing that this could be a preview of what's to come. Do you look at it that way then, that what we're looking here is how they're going to lay this case out? I, I do, because if, if you think about what they've said, and it's very hard to back down from this, and you also have to think about what their other options are. Well, impeachment's not an option. The president's no longer in office. That's only for, for sitting presidents. Civil actions, those are already being taken all across the country. So really what we're left with is the committee and the committee's work and then possible criminal charges if it's turned over to Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States. Now, we understand that right now there are about 100 emails that Eastman says are part of his Trump representation from January 4th to the 7th of last year. But there are more than 10,000 total that Eastman is trying to keep from the committee. So if, you know, we're looking at a lot of paperwork here, a lot of evidence. Oh, and absolutely. And another thing the judge is being asked to do is to take into account where did Professor Eastman send these emails from? He sent them from the, the university at which he was working at the time, and that's Chapman University. And so Chapman University is in a position of saying, was he really doing that on my behalf? Was he doing this on his own behalf? And that's another aspect that the committee has laid out to the judge. And they're saying, look, this was not on behalf of the university. There's no, there's no employer privilege for this. He should give these up to the committee because he was acting in his personal capacity. And then that really would open the floodgates to thousands and thousands of not just emails, but imagine the text messages and the paper documents and the, you know, it could go on and on and on. They'll do it for Pod Suey this week. For full episodes or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.